The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section. So that's the Bible, folks. A lot of disappointing people are in there. And that's the truth. It's not a story about a bunch of holy rollers getting together and worshiping God, doing a great job. It's a story about a bunch of people that are flawed, like, dare I say, you and I. Although, of course, they're probably much worse. It's a story about the steadfast love of the God who chose those people, seemingly by his own, for no other reason than he wanted to, as can be seen throughout the Old Testament. And a lot of times people, when people you know, re engage with the Old Testament and, uh, and see these things, it can be very confusing, saying, like, you know, is this, this what God wanted? This what he... What, what, uh, does this, rep does this story represent God's heart and who God is? And the answer is many times no. People are doing their own thing. God tells them to do one thing, and they do their own thing. It's very disturbing. We made a Snapchat video, and again, that's nothing like our lives. Um, 
We made a Snapchat video, me and Elias, that's become famous in our house. Snapchat is a, a, a filter that can turn uh, your face into an owl or something, you know, and make it talk. I love this kind of stuff. And I could probably put a lot of slides up that would make you question whether I should be up here, you know, making Snapchat, <laughs> making myself into an owl or something. But we've never, we have never said the words to our children. If you have, God forgives you. We've never said we are disappointed in you. We, we just don't say that stuff because we don't want them to internalize it at a young age, of course. Um, so Elias is on this, and, he, and you see him with the owl face, and he, he just sings, I'm Mr. Owl. I talk, I peck everyone, and I do stuff. Then he goes, and I'm just disappointed. Why do you keep disappointing me? And it's a hit with this owl face. It's very, very funny. But many times, you know, we look at, the, we look at a book like Judges, and we think, this is so disappointing. These people, why do you keep disappointing me? We're looking for heroes. We're looking for people that, we, that are better than us that we can somehow look up to. I had a great conversation with Jen about Judges, and, and also with my wife, uh, yesterday. And just thinking about how Sunday schools, if you, if you grew up in church, they portray some of these stories. You're like, oh, you know, there was Gideon, and he was scared, but then he trusted in God. And, and it's just a story about how we, if we trust in God, even if we're scared, we can do great things, which is true. That's a true principle. But Gideon also, like, killed a bunch, murdered a bunch of people for vengeance at the end of his story. He was not a good guy. He screwed it up big time. Again, not like anyone here. Um, but he's, sometimes in, in Sunday school, he's hailed as this kind of like hero, but really God's the hero, not these people. Uh, Samson is a real disappointment. People, in, in the Sunday school thing, he's part of Judges, we read that this week in our readings. Uh, Samson gets this uh, gift from God of strength, he's, he's raised up as a judge, he's, he's supposed to be a Nazarite, that's the word I'm looking for. No razors to be used on his head, he's abstained from fermented drink. And his parents, we, we assume, raised him that way, but he was, was not a Nazarite when he grew up and decided what he wanted to do with his life. He took the gifts God had given him of strength, of power, and anointing to, to deliver his people, and he turned around and he used those gifts for himself in the most ugly way you can imagine. Uh, he had personal vendettas with people. He killed people without remorse. Uh, it, was, it was a real disaster. And finally, the big thing people say, you know, but, but that, at the end, you know, Samson redeemed himself. He asked God for strength one last time, pushed down the pillars, and judged, God judged the Philistines through that. Yeah, except for Samson says, Lord, give me strength one more time so I can kill all these people. Like, he, he was a vengeful man. He was a vengeful man, unrepentant, vengeful man. And so, in Judges and many other parts of the Bible, we see God is the hero of this thing. And God's manner of doing business with people in terms of their will and what they choose to do with what he gives them is uncontrolling. God does not seem interested in controlling everybody. He, he gives people gifts. He gives people power. He gives people even, even important roles. And, uh, and many times they, they take their will and they twist it. And they do something God would never have wanted or intended. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. The cycle of sin Oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. But in all of that, God doesn't give up on his people. We, we should really be encouraged when we read the Old Testament, even though, it's, even though it's dark and dismal at points, and the New Testament, because what does this say about us? Well, it says that we do this. What does it say about God? That he still loves us and continues to use us. And he works with us. And he doesn't just, just let us go. He tries to discipline us so that we don't become a psychopath like Samson. 
which by the way, I looked, I looked up the term and that's accurate. God uh, ha- has, a, has a marvelous plan for every life, but apart from his work in us, um, we're going to end up in this cycle, in this cycle. And uh, because of God's nature of not controlling people and choosing to love people without control, a lot, a lot of this stuff, what we, do, what we do with what God gives us is really our, our choice in many ways. So, I'd like to read a, a section of, of the Bible, and I, I called this sermon um, The Badsicle. If you've seen these before, this is the SpongeBob popsicle from the 90s, and this is a really disgusting popsicle, and this one's partially melted. I thought it was good to say, like, it's a bad cycle, you know, and it's summertime, badsicle. So, if I was a corny person, which I'm clearly not, I would name my sermon The Badsicle. Um, I'd like to read from Judges 1, and, uh, and we have slides up. If you'd like a Bible, you can raise your hand. I'm going to make some observations along the way about uh, what's going on and what God's doing, what people are doing. And there's some things that are easy to miss in here. But in this, uh, I'd like you to see how people are and how God is and what God does. It says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Now, I'd just like to give you the, the background is that God's people uh, had been enslaved in Egypt for many, many years, and they cried out to God, and they, they were being punished for, for being you know, wicked and doing this kind of stuff on the cycle. And uh, um, they cried out to God, and God raised up Moses as a deliverer for them, a prophet. And this was a meek man who did love God, and he was, he was actually a pretty good example to us for the most part. Um, of course, he had his flaws as well. He wasn't, he wasn't perfect in any way, as anyone who reads the story well knows. But he raised up Moses. Moses uh, had these encounters with Pharaoh saying, you know, God says, let my people go. God does not uh, control the situation, and Pharaoh chooses to, over and over again, not let the people go. And so God says, well, if you don't let my people go, lo- locusts are going to come. Blam, blam. All these different things happen. Plagues happen. Again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, 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 hardened. And finally, God gives him over to his hardness of heart. And Pharaoh arrives at his logical conclusion of hard-heartedness towards God to the point where he defies God, even when God says, if you don't let my people go, all of the firstborn in Egypt are going to die from your kid to the children of the animals and people. And it happened because God... Because God, God made it happen. And finally, Pharaoh relented uh, and said, fine, you can go and worship. But then afterwards, he changed his mind and chased the Israelites into uh, the Red Sea, where God had miraculous par- miraculously parted the waters for them to go through. And then the waters swallowed up over Pharaoh and his army. So it's an amazing story in their history. And you'd think that would stick in their mind as, wow, this God is, he wants a people for himself. He'll stop at nothing to make it happen. You know, we can trust him, but they start wandering in the desert. The first thing they do is complain. They say, well, wasn't it better in Egypt? We had good food to eat every day and all this stuff. And, you know, and then so God gives them manna, which means what is it? It's that stuff that fell from the sky and was, it was like frosted flakes without sugar, I think. That's why I I imagine it was frosted flakes. Um, But it fell on the ground, and and he said, gather enough for each day. And then, on, and then gather enough on Fridays so you, could, so you don't have to work on the, my Sabbath, which is Saturday. And they disobeyed and, and it turned rotted. And so, but God is trying to teach them to depend on him. He's trying to teach them to be his people, 
which was God's goal. By the way, it still is God's goal. Uh, God's goal is to have a people for himself that, act- that use their will to follow God and to be a people. We call this the body of Christ because we are the people of God. When people get baptized later, they're saying, I'm part of the body of Christ. This is God's goal then. It's still God's goal. So he's trying to teach them in the desert. Finally, they ask for, oh, we want meat. We don't like this manna stuff. They're complaining about meat. And, he's, and God says, I will give them enough meat until it comes out of their ears and their noses. God is upset that they are so whiny. And again, this is the God who delivered them in a great deliverance. And then there's this time when Moses struck a rock in the desert to make the water come out. Basically, Moses kind of lost it. And he represents the people. So Moses gets the judgment from God. Well, you can't go in the promised land now. That's a real bummer for all of us who are reading the story because we want, we want Moses to get in the promised land. Um, but this is how people are. And whining, complaining, finally they get to the promised land and, um, and they decide to send spies in to check out the land. God never commanded them to do that. In fact, I'm certain that he didn't want them to do that because God doesn't need to spy on the people in the land because God can do anything. If they trust in God, he's going to take care of them, just like when he's parted the water, you know? Just like when he made the meat come out of their ears and, no- and nose holes, which is a funny, funny verse. Um, yes, God can do anything, so... But they were like, no, we, let's send in spies. That's what people do, the other nations around us do. They sent in spies. The spies got scared, except for Joshua and Caleb, a whole generation of people don't get to go in the promised land because of that little thing. Uh, finally, they go into the promised land, and finally we're excited to see God has given, has established a people, and he has established a covenant with them and given them a land, which is very significant uh, to people then and now, uh, Eastern people. Land is very important. Um, and we're, we're saying, you know, they're going to drive the people out of this land, and then, uh, and through that, God is mysteriously judging the people in that land, the Canaanites, for the, for the very wicked ways that they've turned into, uh, including child sacrifice and many, many other disgusting, reprehensible things that God are detestable to God. So people start entering the land, and this is where we kind of pick up the story in Judges. Something you need to know about God is God does give the promised land, but he requires something of the people who are taking it. He's not requiring them to have superior strength or military power. Uh, he's requiring them to trust in him, and God himself is going to do the driving out. That's how it works. If, if you read the story of Gideon, the great thing it says about God is God selected the 300 weakest, wimpiest people, told them to dump their weapons, gave them clay pots and torches, and said, you know, at this time, smash them and make a lot of noise, and then I will defeat the, I will drive the enemy out. And so Gideon's people did that, and, they, and the enemy hurt, thought that there was an army coming. They were so scared, they ran. That's how God does battle. It's not through the strength of people. It's not through, you know, whatever, like the worldly way of doing things. But these people, they're so sucked into the worldly way of doing things, they don't get what God wants to do. And so they begin, uh, they begin very quickly just adopting man's ways and... It just doesn't go well. Once again, as we saw in the video. Oh, so here we are. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Now that's good. They're asking God. They're being dependent. Asking what, what they're supposed to do. The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given them the land into their hands. Okay. 
So they're obeying God there. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us, fight against the Canaanites. We will in turn go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And as a friend of ours says, mosquito bites. A friend, friend of our family is a pastor. He's an awesome guy. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. I'm pretty sure that wasn't God's idea, but anyway, it was a good idea they had. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up the scraps under my table. That's a pretty proud thing to say. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. We're starting to see a little bit of pride coming into the picture here, in my opinion. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahinam, and Talmai. From, from there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. Hmm. I feel like this is starting to sound like any other army. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor since you have given me land in the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephthah, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. That doesn't make any sense. That should have been no problem for God whatsoever. There's something going on here, okay? So they look, again, just like with the spies, they looked and said, oh, they have, they have chariots with iron on them. We can't do this. And they were unable to do it because they weren't trusting in God at this point. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites. Oh, boy. God said to drive everybody out who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites. Um, common practice of the day was to attack a place as it is today and to enslave the people in the city and take their wives and all that stuff uh, as spoils of war, uh, force them into forced labor. These are things that people did, and they are definitely tr starting to just look like any other nation at this point. Uh, and so they did not actually obey God and drive out the people. They instead uh, began to live with people and not in a, a kind way. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. They're not asking the Lord for directions anymore. They're spying, and they're, they're asking other people for help. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city, and called it Luz, which is its name to that day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Iblim, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. 
when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol. This is why I went to seminary, guys. <laughs> so I can pronounce things in the Bible. I'm the only one that can do it. No. That's all I learned in seminary. <laughs> Lots of flashcards. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did, did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko, or Sidon, or Halab, or Oxib, or Helba, or Aphek, or Rehob. The Asherites, thank you, thank you. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. It's amazing that phrase. When Israel became strong, all of a sudden they're like, hey, we're a pretty formidable army. Let's start enslaving people and doing, doing our thing. We don't even need God at this point. Let's keep moving. This ain't going to work well for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain, and the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Heres, Aijalon, and Shalabim. But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. This is not what God wanted. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. And now, whenever God shows up in a story like this, uh, I suggest the people in the story listen, if I could go back in time. Not just listen, but take it to heart. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, the angel of the Lord is a way for the Bible to talk about an incarnation of God, like God was coming to them. It could have been Jesus Christ, God. Somehow, it was, it was a manifestation of God himself. Um, the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. Then the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites. They all wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Here's some, an important life lesson as a Christian. You can feel really bad for things you do. You can cry out to God. But unless you change your life, you're going to end up in the same place that you were before. That's the truth. So a lot of times when, when people hit rock bottom, you know, they cry, they weep, they're, they're looking for help. And then when they finally say to themselves, oh, I'm, I'm strong now, I'm good, all that goes out the window and they keep on doing what they were originally doing. Um, when God speaks to us and convicts us of something, we need to take it seriously. Uh, these people did not have a genuine repentance here, which you'll see in a moment. So they wept aloud, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Sacrifices and burnt offerings, God does not appreciate unless they accompany action. God actually says in the Old Testament many times, you know, these, these offerings are detestable to me. Change your heart. Tear your heart actually feel bad for the things you've done. Actually change your life by the power of my spirit. I don't want your sacrifices all the time. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites from, from their crying party, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. 
Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnah-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They, had, they forgot, and, and their parents didn't teach them. So that's what happened, as John Soper pointed out this week. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And that's child sacrifice right there. Um, and you'll see one of the judges sacrifices his daughter later in this book. It's just a detestable to the Lord. This is what God did not want to happen. He did not want this to happen. Um, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Not so strong anymore. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. I, I always have a problem when anyone says unequivocally, politically, personally, you know, God's on my side, so everyone needs to bow down to me. God's on your side conditionally. God's on your side if you honor him and you obey him and he's your king. The, the minute that you go against God, he, you might find yourself fighting against him. That's not a good place to be. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges. <laughs> My gosh. But prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I want you to notice something about God's anger against these people. Notice how God channels his anger. And again, his anger is not like our anger. He doesn't, you know, he's not, it's, you shouldn't anthropomorphize God and say our anger is just like God's anger. This is, this is a little different of a category, but how does God... Uh, God's anaf, his, his burning anger that he feels, get manifested. Number one, I will no longer drive people out of the nations that Joshua left before he died. And number two, I will use them to test Israel to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk as their ancestors did. This is the love of God. That God gets infuriated with all this breaking and, and rotting, and he gives them into the fruit of their decisions to not clear out these people, but to live among them and worship their gods. God gets angry at them for worshiping other gods. And then in his mercy, he says, I'm going to use the people that they've chosen to leave in their land as a way of testing Israel to see whether they will keep the way, my ways and walk as their ancestors did. No matter what bad decisions that you've made in your life, no matter what things you've let into your life that you probably shouldn't have or continue to leave in your life that doesn't belong as a Christian, God does not control you and make you, twist your arm to change that thing. God will respect your choice to keep things in your life that don't belong. And he will still love you. And then he will turn around and he will use those things as, as a part of discipline to see if you will obey, eventually turn around and obey him. That's what he does. God, you know, 
wants us to, to walk into the land and take it in his power. But we leave so many little things in our lives uh, that we, we just hold on to. And God, in his mercy, he doesn't twist our arm or force us. He says, okay, you're still my person. I love you. I'm now going to use that thing that you're not willing to give up to test you, to see if you will be faithful to me. That's amazing love. God's love is very redemptive. Um, but I'm telling you, you make your life a lot harder going about your faith that way. <laughs> That's for sure. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israels who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Libo Hamath, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. So picture this. They completely forsook the God who had done all this stuff for them. They didn't even teach their kids about how great God was. The whole generation walked away from God. And instead of rejecting his people, God said, I'm going to use all these things you've allowed uh, to continue living in your land to test you. To bring you to a place where you can decide, I'm going, to obey, I'm going to obey God. This is what I'm going to do. And I believe this is still the way that God works. And that's a tumultuous existence. But I believe this is still the way God works. God says to us, and I, I, do, not, I do not allegorize the Bible lightly, but this is such a deep truth from God that I can't help but, but give a lesson about what it looks like to come to faith in Jesus, what it looks like to walk our faith in Jesus. Because this, this is a perfect picture. So if you'll, if you'll indulge me in our lives, God saves us, you know, through Jesus Christ, from our sins. He washes our sins away from us. When we, when we confess our sins to him, there's no need for penance. There's no need for works of the law or good deeds on our part in order to earn salvation. It's a free gift from God. And he, he saves us in that way so that we can then become a part of the people of God which is God's dream to have a people for himself. So we get, we get all this stuff, and then in Hebrews it says, you know, God has made every, uh, every overture so that you can finally rest, to not be living in sin, not be living in bondage. And then it says in Hebrews, make every effort to enter into that rest. So that's the offer that God gives us, and, and, and how, we're supposed, how we're supposed to respond to it. And again, God doesn't control our response. How we're supposed to respond to the king, God, doing this great thing for us is to surrender to the king and say, you are the rightful Lord of my life. I no longer am the Lord of my life. I want to find out what pleases you and to walk in your ways. We don't do it perfectly. There's plenty of grace, but that's the correct response. But all of us, and this requires some reflection, myself included, we choose to let all the things live in us after we become a Christian. Lots of stuff. If you think about your, your body being like the promised land. God says, I have victory. I have all the power to drive this stuff out of, you, out of you. All the stuff that you were into before you knew me, the wounds that you've received, I have the power to give you this land so that you can finally rest and be at peace and not struggling constantly in a sick cycle of sin, repentance, deliverance, forgiveness, sorrow, sin, 
forgive, you know, that whole cycle. But people, um, they often wink at God and say, well, you know, I want you to be Lord of my life. I receive your forgiveness, but they have, they have holdouts. They, let, they have things living in the land in themselves uh, that are so close to their heart that they can't even picture life without them. Sometimes it's even a personality characteristic that, you, that you've always been this way. You were, you were trained in your family to do things this way. This is how we all talk to my family. This is how we do things in this world that we live in. Uh, this, is, this is how we get through a day. And we, we fail to learn the lesson that God is our deliverer, God is our provider, and God has given us this land. We no longer have to live the way we used to live. It's now time to take full possession of this land that God's given us. And how do we do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in, in, in Romans, we read last week, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So if you picture your body like the promised land that God is, has given you to finally, to finally rest in him, you know, we are, what he's asking us to do is, is to, in the midst of our most difficult battles, trust in him. You have a problem with compulsive behavior. In the moments when you are about to do that compulsive behavior, you say, God, you have saved me. You've delivered me. You've given me rest. I trust in you, the power of your Holy Spirit to deliver me. And if you mean it, God will do it every time. The problem is that we don't mean it when we say those kinds of things. We have a bad moment. We get overturned by, by another king or something, and we're, we feel bad, we cry. But ultimately, we just keep doing the same thing we've always done. And I think what... The, <laughs> There's so much power from God available and so much grace and so much fatherly love in the Father. The problem is never with God's ability to break through things in your life that are holdouts. The problem is that we want to have those holdouts in our life. This is my space. It doesn't belong completely to you. But God has called us to enter into his rest. So this morning, as the worship band comes forward, this is a lifelong process. Some of us are very new Christians in this room, I know for sure been saved less than a year. Some of us have been saved since we were born, practically, because our families raised us up and then we chose into it early. Whatever your life has looked like, um, God is asking for your whole life when you come to him. No holdouts. He's saying, take the land completely. This is yours to have. And he's asking us to surrender to him uh, all of the things that that we are, in, in a sense, hiding from him within ourselves. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God will put to death that thing inside of you so that you can live in a perpetual state of Sabbath rest. This is not something that I am fully living in, but I believe this is what God wants for his people. He wants them to be resting. Uh, he, and he doesn't force us to rest. He lets us live our whole lives in bondage. He doesn't force us to do anything. He points to things. And it's a process. Whenever God points to something, our job is to say, yes, Lord, give me the power of the Holy Spirit to break free from this enemy, which is robbing me of my soul. So, th- so this is a lifelong process, but it's also, you know, a general demeanor that we need to develop in our relationship with God, where we, we come to him and say, Lord, you're calling me to, to, what are you calling me to do? You know, and he'll say, well, go to this land and do this, and I will surely deliver you. And you do that. This is not an overwhelming, anxiety-provoking uh, situation. This is a going to God with an actual desire to honor him, to love him, to give your life to him, for him to be the king and ruler of your life, receiving just that one thing that, from him that you can surrender, then, then surrendering it back to him and trusting his power to accomplish that which you can't do on your own. 
So as we worship today, just think about your body like the promised land. God set you free. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him for your salvation, you've become a part of the people of God, you are no longer chained, really, to sin. You are no longer chained and condemned for breaking some kind of religious rules. You are not condemned. You are fully loved, just as you are. Nothing you need to do to change that. But there are areas God will bring up, the holdouts that we just have never offered to him. And he just wants access to those places. Because there's some work that only God can do. It's when we think we're strong that we fall into all kinds of trouble. Let's go before him. Lay our lives before the king once again. And whatever he tells you, go after it. But don't go after it in your own power. Ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and bring freedom. The scriptures say emphatically, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. The spirit is not too weak to do these things in our lives. We are unwilling. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save you. There is no one who is beyond the reach of God. God can do anything. That's a fact. Last week, a couple weeks ago, I met with a friend and talking about one of my struggles in my life. It's something I talked to him about before, and he looked at me and he said, do you really want to be free from this? And I said, yeah, I think so. He goes, well, um, if you really wanted to be free from this, God would, have, God would deliver you because God's all-powerful. God can do anything. If you really wanted this, God, would, God is just waiting. He's gonna, he wants to rise up in you and bring freedom in this area. And I said, you know what? You're right. The, the, the problem is, is hardly ever with the Lord in these areas. It's never with the Lord. Uh, God is a gentleman. He goes where he's wanted. He goes where we give him access. He does not twist our arm. He does not poke holes in us until we are crushed to our knees and we surrender, and we surrender to him in that way. Um, but when we give our will to the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit can then do the work that only God can do. Giving us the rest that we need to enter into, that we have been avoiding. God wants us to have victory in our lives, not to be defeated in a cycle. God wants a people for himself. We are that people. Let's respond differently than some of these people in the Old Testament. Let's respond differently than we have in the past. I'll leave you with this. Joshua, before he he died, said this. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are, you are um, always so willing to point out just the next step in front of us. We want a program, God. We want it to be done now. Um, we want it to be finished. We want it to just, just be done. But you have called us to do some hard work to take the land that you've already bought for us by trusting in you every step of the way. So for each person here, God, whether you've given it to them already or you'll give, the, give it to them this week, give them one thing that you want access to that you want to be the Lord over. An area where 
you are nowhere to be seen in their lives. And then by the power of your spirit, God, take that, that thing and bring freedom and bring life and let your people rise up and be the people that you've always dreamed we could be uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us have victory and peace, finally, peace and rest to lay our heads down um, without guilt, without shame, without darkness, without secrets, God. Free and full in you. I pray this in Jesus' name for your people, for the church. I pray your blessing upon our day as we continue worshiping you in, in baptiz baptism and seeing what you can do in lives who surrender to you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.